This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of the Journey Within podcast. I have a special guest with me today, Justin Spring from Boone and Crockett Club. Justin, how are you doing today? Great, man. Appreciate being on. No, thanks for thanks for hopping on. I've been uh, looking forward to this one just because I may be a little selfish, but I've got a ton of questions um, just on Boone and Crockett Club and, and in general and everything of what you guys do over there. Um, I don't know as much about that as as other ones, which I think is going to lead to this being a great one because I'm a I'm gonna ask a lot of questions from a from a selfish standpoint. Um, but first, where where are you based at? Where are you out of today? So I'm in our uh, headquarters, which is in Missoula, Montana, right on the Clark Fork River. So not not a bad place to be. No, it is not a bad place at all. Where are you originally from? I grew up in Southern Oregon, uh, bounced around a little bit. I went to school in Wisconsin, worked around the Northwest, and then landed in, in Montana in 2008 to work for the club. Gotcha. So that is uh, that is actually quite a bounce around to end up in Wisconsin. What, what brought you over to Wisconsin? I actually played collegiate soccer. Did you really? And, yeah. That's great. I, I visited some of the smaller schools and they had a really good uh, environmental, you know, wildlife type program. And when I flew back there to do a visit, um, it was a bit of a drive from the airport to the college. And we saw like 150 deer on the way there and 200 on the way back. And so I figured that was a place I needed to spend my next four or five years. That's awesome. So what'd you study at college? Uh, fish and wildlife ecology. And you played soccer at the same time. Yep. That's awesome. That is awesome. But all my kids are, are huge into soccer, and so is my wife. That's that's awesome. I spend a, a lot of time at the soccer fields right now. Yeah, <laughs> kind of straight. But my body size isn't exactly that of a soccer player. It's more of a football player, you know, 6'2", 220. <laughs> but, yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting. So what, posi- what position did you play in soccer? Defender. I was in the back, stopper. Okay. No, that's great. Obviously played soccer from the time you were little all the way all the way through high school. Yeah, the uh, the soccer coach gave us more time to hunt than the football coach, so that's why I picked that in, in high school. Well, there you go. So obviously, you grew up hunting and fishing. Yep. Yep. Did uh, who got you into hunting and fishing originally? You know, honestly, I I mean, I was fishing from before I can even remember. My my grandpa was very into hunting and fishing. You know, my dad and had a group of hunting buddies that I always you know, kind of idolized them and wanted to go out, and I was. You know, my mom would take me out from, like I said, before I could even remember, I remember trying to catch salmon and not fishing up and down the Oregon coast and trying everything I could. And so it, it never really was a start. You know, I I don't know who I could really credit starting it. I mean, it just kind of always was there. So did you, and this kind of relates to when I was, I was in school, did you have friends on your sports teams that were also active in the outdoors? Uh, not to the level I was. I was kind of always the outlier. 
But did you, have, mean, did you ever go? Because I'm thinking back here. I hadn't thought about this in a long time. But my my dad um, has had bird dogs ever since I was born, and I've had bird dogs ever since I I turned 12. I've had bird dogs of my own, and I was obviously the only one in school that had um, bird dogs. So when we were in high school, obviously spent a lot of time in the locker room, bouncing sport to sport. But I did have a couple of friends that. Um, liked hunting, but obviously had never done wing shooting before because never had a dog or anything like that. So I, I, and I hadn't thought about this in years, but I remember going out with a couple of them multiple times going, um, wing shooting, getting out of practice, going and grabbing my dog. And all of a sudden we'd be, be out in the field. Those are great memories. I hadn't thought of in a while. Yeah, we, uh, we did got a pretty good place to duck hunt when I was in high school. And there was a few of us on the basketball team that the basketball coach was never real happy when he tried to do early morning Saturday practice and it all show up, you know, stinky from being the duck blind and waiters Co- covered uh, in mud. Yeah. He, he was like, you guys got to sleep, but it's like, we're, we're, we're hunting, man. Sorry. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> it, is, it is hunting season and we have to get it on. So, um, are you married with kids? I am. Um, met my wife in college. She's from Northern Minnesota. She's as into the outdoors and hunting and fishing as I am. I mean, she, Grew up on the backside of a lake with boat access only, never learned to ride a bike, but was driving a boat by the time she was like four. And so, yeah, all, all of our time is spent chasing critters all over the place. And then we have a seven-year-old son who, uh, his, his hero is Jeremy Wade. He wants to catch monster fish. And so <laughs> he's all about ice fishing for pike or whatever it may be. He just got a real nice paddle fish this year, oh, a month ago here in Montana. And so, yeah, we, uh, we, we hit it pretty hard. That's awesome. So after you graduated um, from college, where what what stops did you have along the way in the outdoor industry that eventually led you to Boone and Crockett Club? You know, we were coming out of school. We thought there was more fisheries jobs, and so that's kind of where we started. Was was fisheries work for Idaho Fish and Game? Um, my wife worked for the state of Oregon, and I worked for uh, Plum Creek Timber, and so we were more in the you know the biology side of things and. The, not as much in the outdoor industry. You know, I guided fishing in Alaska and so did she at a flying fish lodge, you know, in the summer. So, you know, that was kind of our experience to the industry. But then, you know, coming out of school, we thought it would be more, you know, state biologist type thing. And the opportunity with Boone and Crockett came along and I applied and, you know, kind of, kind of snowballed from there. Well, that's great. And what does your wife do now? She works for a consulting firm that uh, identifies aquatic invertebrates. They do water quality monitoring. So she's looking through a microscope all day long, identifying aquatic bugs, which is pretty handy when we're out trying to fly fish. I can, I can imagine. Based out of Missoula, though, too? <laughs> yep, yep. They're, they're in Missoula as well. Well, it sounds like you've spent a ton of time in the field, both growing up and, and with your wife and now your son, which is awesome. I, I do a ton with uh, with my kids outdoors, and that's obviously some of the, the best memories I have. What are, what are some of your favorite hunting memories that you've had so far? Hunting or fishing? You know, I mean, there's, there, I've been so fortunate where I've lived and, and all the opportunity. You know, um, my wife got a really nice caribou. We did a drop camp on the, the north slope of the Brooks Range before they closed that area up there. Um, she she kind of killed her dream caribou the first day of the hunt. That was pretty awesome. Um you know, with fishing with the, with my, with our son, I mean, there's, there's been a few times that, you know, we actually, you know, we tried the whole, oh, we got to make sure he gets fish. You got to keep him excited. Well, we took it to the extreme. We got to the point where he's like, well, it's not hard to catch fish. We just go out and catch a bunch of fish. This is dumb. So we took him steelhead fishing and spent, you know, three days camped over in Oregon trying to get a steelhead on the fly. And uh, he woke up the middle of the second night, just shot up in bed in the middle of the night. He's like, I'm a good fisherman. Why am I not catching a fish? So that was that was a pretty cool experience too. It turns out he's got the uh, the desire for more of a chase than a guaranteed thing. So that was cool for me. That's awesome. He has definitely got the bug then. Yeah, that's awesome. So I mean, you live in, in right in the middle of the mecca out there. I mean, you're hours from driving to prime hunting states. What is your what's your typical spring and fall look like for for hunting and fishing? We we get after the spring bears pretty hard. Um, you know, Oregon had outlawed the use of bait and dogs for bears right about the time I turned 12 and could hunt. So by the time I was 16, they it was all spot and stock, and nobody was really doing it at the time. And so I kind of you know cut my teeth back then, just spotting and stalking bears there. 
and we've done that now in Montana quite a bit. We also go to Alaska usually in the spring. Um, I've tried hard to get into the turkey hunting, but it, the, the bears just keep calling me back. And so we we generally, if, even if we don't have tags, we'll we'll be in Alaska pretty much every spring fishing and and helping folks get bears. So I've I've gone up there a few times to Prince Wales Island and you know all those southeast areas and chase bears. And then uh, in the fall, it usually starts you know in August. I mean Montana has an archery uh, antelope season that opens August fifteenth, and we go go hard in the paint until you know November. Um, you know, before Idaho switched up their systems, we used to always have an Idaho deer tag in our pocket in case we were tagged out in Idaho or in Montana. We mm-hmm. could pop over there. Um, you know, we we apply in all the western states, and so you know the year the year is the stars align and we get drawn. Um, you know, we'll make that work, but it's it's usually pretty pretty intense few months. Well, that being said, you know we can go out our back door and hunt mule deer, whitetail, and elk. You know, literally in our yard. So. That's- Love, love Montana. Um, well, it sounds like you've traveled all, all over the place. And before I, before I dig into that, what, if you've applied all over the West, what have been some of the good tags you've drew, you've drawn so far? You know, I, I kind of what started, I drew an Oregon mountain goat tag, which was a once Ooh. in a lifetime, one, one tag for 1,317 applicants. And I drew that the year I went to work for BNC. And so that kind of showed, you know, my friends like, Hey man, you it really can be you that draws those tags. And so that started, you know, the application process. We've drawn some pretty good cows hunts in uh, Arizona. I pulled a Utah archery deer tag, Utah elk tag, um, drew Maine moose, got, went back to Maine and killed a pretty cool bull in Maine. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Montana, I've got a, a Shiras here. So uh, the dr- draws have been pretty good to me. That's what it sounds like. You've actually had some really darn good luck. So of all of of everything, I mean, you live and breathe the the hunting and fishing every day with with Boone and Crockett Club, and it sounds like you live the active outdoor lifestyle. What is? I got two questions for you. What is your dream hunt that you want to do, and then what is your wife's dream hunt? <laughs> so my wife's always wanted a mountain caribou, and so we're actually going to the Yukon here in August, and that that trips for her to try to get a mountain caribou. Hopefully that that gets me some points, and I'm I'm really chasing a, a free range buffalo. Okay. Um, I, I don't I don't know what it is, but you know there's a couple hunts out there that are that are pretty intense for buffalo, and that that seems like a pretty cool thing. I I was really into moose, and then all of a sudden the draws favored me. I drew Montana, I drew uh, Maine, and then actually had a buddy invite me to do a float in Alaska. So in four years I killed all three of the moose, and that was kind of my life goal. And I was like, well. Uh, that happened way quicker than I thought was ever possible. And so bi- bison's kind of in the target now. That's a great run on moose right there, by the way. <laughs> it was phenomenal. <laughs> so where I, I've, I've been doing some of the, the research on bison, and it's, to, to catch a true free-range bison, anybody that's listening, it's not as easy as, as, as what you think. What are the areas that you're focusing in on? I mean, honestly, some of those Utah hunts yep. would, would be amazing, but it's, you know, 20-something-year wait. Um, we're always in on the Alaska hunts. You know, there's, there's some that are better than others, but you know, no points or anything you throw in every year and see what, you know, I'm just, just waiting for the successful, but it hasn't come yet. Realistic. I mean, Montana has, you know, the, a couple of units that we can put in for here, but that's really weather dependent. And a lot of the other States have got a little bit cost prohibitive on, you know, the upfronts to just put in. And so, you know, realistically right now, I mean, Utah or Alaska would be, you know, what, what I if, if I won the lottery and could buy a tag or something, that, that would be the one I'd go for. Yep. Yep. So I know you've got an interesting story of, of joining Boone and Crockett. You want to explain just how, how you got involved with Boone and Crockett, started where it started your job, where you're at now? Yeah. So I mean, we, we got out of school, you know, my well, we weren't married at the time, but you know, Rebecca and I didn't think we'd end up with a job in place. Just it was a tight job market, but we were able to bounce around and both find you know employment within the wildlife field wherever we went. She's smart with me. They'd hire me, and she'd sit in her picker up. Boone and Crockett had flown this assistant director of Big Game Records, and I'd applied for it. And it's it'd probably been four, five months, it's been quite a while. But I haven't heard anything. Well, that year I already found go tag. They required Orient. Class that the state puts on 
And so I went to that and my wife, well, again, girlfriend at the time, but future wife was there with me and we're eating lunch and, you know, one of the presenters there was the vice president of Big Game Records and the records committee chairman. And so we're, we're sitting there at lunch and you can kind of see he's at the end of the line and the seats are running out. So we, we figured a way that we could hold four seats. And then as he came out the end of the, the lunch line, we're like, hey, Mr. Buck, where you know, I'd like to introduce ourselves. So I introduced myself to Buck. And then on that, that following Monday, I got a call from Boone and Crockett scheduling a phone interview that next week I was on a plane, which, you know, I'd, I'd never flown anywhere. I didn't. <laughs> It was kind of out of my element. You show up here to the Boone and Crockett headquarters. You have this amazing library, and I'm sitting here with a bunch of members. And, you know that it, it kind of kind of whirlwind. Moved, moved to Missoula, and we've been here. That's awesome. So how long have how long have you been with Boone and Crockett Club now? Four, fourteen years, I think. Coming up on fourteen in October. Fourteen years, and I bet it's flown by. Yeah, yeah, we're we're doing our one of our awards programs, and you know, going through the official measures that are coming. I'm like, oh, it hasn't been a major that long, and then I look at the date, and you're like, oh man, that that was a while ago, I guess. <laughs> so let's let's dig into Boone and Crockett Club. What what is Boone and Crockett Club's mission? I mean, you know, promoting conservation of wildlife, especially big game. You know that that's that's kind of our wheelhouse, but. You know, from the beginning, we we've always been about you know scientific management of resources and and overall healthy you know healthy resources, healthy forests, healthy wildlife, and so that's I mean that's the core mission of Boone and Crockett. And a lot of people, you know, the the public facing side of BNC is the records program. You know what I'm involved with, but you know that's 10% of our budget. That's a very small amount of what the club's actually involved in. You know, at the DC level, at the you know collegiate level, trying to get wildlife biologists trained up and understanding the history and everything. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, to put it short, it's not the official position, but you know, making sure that there's critters and they have a place to live is what we do. I like that line. That's that's simple. I can I can understand that one. Um, now I know you guys do a banquet every three years, correct? Yeah, that's our big game awards program, and that's coming up in July. Um, in Springfield, the 21st through the 23rd this year. Okay. Walk, walk through what, what's a normal banquet in everything that you guys put on over there? So with within our uh, recording periods, they're done in three-year awards periods. This is the 31st that, that the banquet's for. We're in the 32nd now. Um, anything that's in the top five of the category, or the top five of the uh, um the three-year period that we've received is invited to be panel verified. And so we invite all these top, top trophies to come. They're sent ahead of time. This happened in April. We go through and we're looking to, to verify that the scoring was correct. You know, it's a lot of folks think it's all, oh, you're, you're going to hammer shrinkage. No, we know they're going to shrink a little bit. We're just looking to make sure that our policies were uniform when they were, you know, applied. Mm-hmm. Um, we can then extrapolate that number and say, okay, well, 26% of those that came into the, you know, the awards program were actually scored a little bit short. So that gives us an idea of overall what our, our success is and what, you know, mistakes may be happening out there. Um, so that's, that's part of it. That's the top ones that are recognized on Saturday night. We also do a youth banquet. So any hunter that was 16 or younger that takes a Boone and Crockett qualifying trophy they're invited. Those those are put on display as well, and that's purely a recognition event. Those are not rescored or anything. Um, we're not trying to you know pit one kid against the next on the biggest. It's just you you achieve what many hunters will you know chase their entire lives, and we want to recognize you for doing that. So that's our Saturday night youth banquet. Um, we do a luncheon for all of our official majors. You know, kind of to thank them for their their service. I mean, there's only 13 staff, and we have 1,440 something official majors, they are the backbone of the club. So this is an opportunity for us to, to recognize all of them. Um, we, we recognize our lifetimes at another luncheon. Uh, we have a big welcome reception this, this time around. We've got some outdoor personalities that are going to be there. Um, and so it's, it's a celebration of the, you know, successful conservation and also those fair chase hunters that took those animals. Now, what is, and this will be a multi one, this is probably going to be a long lengthy subject. Let's talk about fair chase and hunter ethics. I mean, that's the backbone of, of Boone and Crockett. Why, why did the, why did you or, or not you, but Boone and Crockett come up with that? Why is that the backbone of Boone and Crockett? 
So originally, you, you've got to go back to the you know the 18, 1800s, late eighteen hundreds when when we were founded. You know, in eighteen eighty seven, there was no game laws, there was nothing, and you know the the market hunting, the pot hunting, it was what they referred to as meat hunters that would just shoot anything, and it was all about numbers. And market hunters were selling it. You know, the the whole adage of you know a, a deer's skin, a buck's skin was worth one dollar. Well, there there's the the terminology of buck. Um, I mean, it was rampant. You know, they were they were just decimating wildlife. And so, you know, at the time, the, the hunting magazines and like um, Wildlife Journal was kind of one and the same. There was no field of wildlife. So the hunting magazines were more of an exchange of these naturalists that were hunting. And what they wanted to do is change the public perception, not the public, the, the hunters. They wanted to highlight the hunters that were being selective and not taking too much, in essence, trying to say, you know, we cannot be harvesting the young animals, the females. We need to let these populations rebound for hunting to continue. We have to select only the most mature male that's beyond breeding it, breeding age, right? And so within that, the fair chase of the, the fair chase aspect of not spotlighting, not crusting animals, you know, getting them caught in deep snow, not driving a boat up on them and executing them. They they had to change the whole you know ethics of hunting and what was acceptable to society in order to save wildlife. Well, that, you know, that worked great for, for, for turning things around. I mean, the early, early 1900s conservation success stories are amazing. You know, we got, we got the field of wildlife management was created. We had, we had people hired to now set limits to put seasons on it. Well, once, once the seasons and the outline of, um, you know, how many animals could be taken was being managed by professionals, you know, the need for hunters to self-regulate their harvest kind of went away. But then as that happened, you also have an expanding population. So fair chase was started to save wildlife. Well, it's kind of shifted gears now mm-hmm. because we have, we have an absolutely, you know, giant population of people here that, that are not all hunters. Very few of us are hunters. And so in order for hunting to continue in the, fun, the North American hunting needs to stay accepted. So this idea of fair chase, the animal has an equal or, or better opportunity to elude the hunter than a guaranteed kill we really feel that that's what the public wants to see in hunting. So they understand that it, that it's, it's beneficial and ethically it's done carefully. So, you know, fair chase today is just as important to saving wildlife by, you know, maintaining hunting in the North American model than it started, even though the real purpose of why we're so adamant in, in promoting that has, has kind of shifted over time. Gotcha. That was a, a great explanation. I know you guys do a ton of on, uh, Distinguishing free range and in I guess mapping the the areas of each each species too. Can you just touch on on the work you guys do there too? So I mean, the club's position on on free ranging. In essence, we're trying to promote native North American big game. Um, you know, are there fences big enough that the animal has a chance to elude you? Certainly, but if you look at the whole scheme of things. We want interconnectedness amongst wildlife populations. Once you fence something, that 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 is kind of taking it out of the overall free-ranging native population and creating kind of an island. And so that's where the club and for our records program, you know, where we're gauging wildlife management successes and failures, we're looking on the continental scale. So that really skews our data if we were to include, you know, a, an isolated population within an enclosure that's really not a, a great indicator of what the overall wildlife health is on the landscape there. And so, you know, that's, that's one thing we've done and, and we're not, you know, we understand that, that there are places and times that fencing of certain species and whatnot is, you know, is unavoidable, I guess, for lack of a better term, but at the same time, you know, our, our mission is the overall wildlife population. So that's why we're pretty, you know, heavy on that. We have done some work on distinguishing um, different subspecies, you know, some uh, money for DNA analysis on like, oh, looking at blacktails and mule deer and where those integrates happen, um, you know, analyzing different populations of, of, of whitetail and is this a subspecies or not. And so, you know, that's that's all interesting stuff. I mean, some stuff just came out. We didn't do it, but, you know, kind of talking on moose. Um, they've basically genetically showed that moose are not that genetically different across the boundaries. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some of our borders are 100% habitat driven. The Roosevelt's elk's a prime example. 
Um, they live in a thicker habitat. You know, it's not advantageous to have as big antlers because the brush is so thick and they, it, it's an impediment. And so there is certain categories that we have that are driven by, you know, environmental factors that change the, the, the look of the animal. All right. That's, that's interesting. I, sp- I spent a lot of time on, on your guys' website, just, I mean, reading through everything and, and how you guys have everything listed on there. If, if you guys haven't checked that out, make sure to head to Boone and Crockett. They've got a ton of great information on their, on their website. So how many, over the course of a year, how many, how many entries do you guys have normally? You know, it, within the three-year period, it, you know, the first year is always the lowest, and then the final year everybody wants to get everything in, but it averages about fifteen to 1,600 generally per year. Okay. All right. And for anybody that I know there's a, there's a, there's a group of hunters out there that don't enter anything in what, what would, what would you tell somebody that's on the fence? If I, if I've, man, I've, I just took a, a great whitetail or a great mule deer, or I went on a caribou hunt and I, I shot a great central barren ground caribou. What would, what would you tell that person of, Hey, this is, this is why um, we encourage you to enter that in. I mean, you know, first and foremost, it is it is a pretty good accomplishment to get something of that size. But, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of people don't care if their name's in a book. And that's that's fine. That's not why we do this. Um, we're we're maintaining these records as a as a scientific data set, you know, and we use it to highlight wildlife management successes and failures. Um, you know, the best example I can give is you have places that, you know, are going to say, oh, the hunters are killing all the all the bears, for example, in this state, you have to, you have to ban black bear hunting in this particular state. Well, if I have those data points from all those qualifying heads, I can bring them science and say, well, actually, scientifically, we show that these bears are getting larger. Um, we're seeing, you know, more expanding populations of these trophies. And so as a hunter, I mean, even if you don't care if your name's in a book, you know, for the overall good of wildlife populations, we need that data point. And one that, you know, the biggest thing that I fight is somebody will say, oh, well, I killed a, you know, 172 inch white tail and this one's only mid 160s. Well, you know, that's, that's more wildlife management data that we could see. I mean, if I can say, hey, this area used to put out, you know, 10, 170 plus bucks every, you know, three years, and now it's only putting out one every 10 years, you know, that's another thing that we can say, we can go to the state or the state can come to us and say, hey, you know, when did this change happen? You know, our records won't say, well, this is the problem. Like, clearly this is what happened or this is what happened. But it does give you a good baseline data set to check a hypothesis against. You know, we this is a particular, you know, uh, agricultural practice changed on this date. What's the effect on the deer? You know, okay, the price of something went up this high, more area went into production. Did we see a reduction in deer? So every single one of those those points that I can get from a qualifying head is actually to, to promote the future of wildlife and hunting. And that's what I always try to tell folks. You know, if you don't care about it, that's fine, but do it for hunting and do it for conservation. No, and that's that's great. And truthfully, I have to admit, I didn't know um how much you guys were doing and then kind of driving the science behind all this. I find that in extremely intriguing and interesting. Um, I'd always been kind of one of those people that was on the fence about, do I enter stuff in? Do I not enter stuff in? And, and truthfully, until I heard you just say what you guys use it for, um, I never had enough of a, a convincing to be able to just want to do it. But now, like you say that how you, how you use it to drive scientific data to help agencies out, what, what agencies do you guys work with that you guys share the data with? You know, it's, uh... Like USGS has reached out. They're, they're doing some stuff that they asked for some of our data. Um, oh, Monteith Shop, he's a professor out of the University of Wyoming. They've, they've been involved in that discussion over whether um, oh, selective hunting has a negative effect on the gene pool. And they've done a lot of research on that and looked at state records and aging. Uh, Arkansas had a, they introduced some antler point restrictions and they had a hypothesis to see, you know, what the effects of those were. And they asked for our data that basically kind of reinforced it. So they didn't say, oh, look at what B and C did. But, you know, they had they had a solid data set and they said, hey, we think your data would help strengthen this case. So they used that. Um, you know, we get reached out a lot, you know, from a not necessarily a publications level, but a biologist for certain areas like, hey, 
you know, I feel like my, my gear numbers are down from what we used to see. What are you seeing in entries? And so it's kind of across the, you know, the board on what, what it could be used for. Um, and, and we're always working to find something else that, you know, where's our data useful? What, what could we help say, or what could we help address from a scientific level? I mean, we're the only, only group that hasn't, you know, data set from all of North America of, of wildlife trends going back, you know, to at least 1950 when our current system was developed. And that really doesn't exist anywhere else. If you guys are looking for the best seat covers on the market, you gotta make sure to check out Rough Tough. I've had them in my truck now going on four years and they are bulletproof. Make sure to check them out, roughtough.com. Leopold offers the best optics in the game bar none. I personally have their Santium binos and never go to the field without their Pro Guide spotting scope. I've got a Mark V on all my rifles, and also don't forget they've got some awesome eyewear as well. For more information, visit leopold.com. If you're looking to book the trip of a lifetime, make sure to give the team at WTA a call at 1-800-755-8247 or check out our website, worldwidetrophyadventures.com. So I want to go off on a, on a side one here, and I'm going to hit you. I don't know if you if you know this off the top of your head or not, but I'm, I'm intrigued on the, the data of what the Arkansas one showed when they entered in an antler point restriction what do you know off the top of your head what what the data showed it did increase the age structure down there if i recall um there's been some very interesting work done with with antler point restrictions and in some places it works wonderfully in other places it does not um it's not a, a one-size-fits-all approach it really depends on the other factors affecting the herd whether or not putting in an antler point restriction would have the desired effect. Pennsylvania and Arkansas, it did increase the age structure and gave them a higher quality, uh, you know, older older animal, which is gonna express larger horns, or antlers, excuse me. Um, but again, you know, at, at what cost, you have to have the public acceptance of it and mm -hmm. the tradition needs to be taken into account. So it's not a, it's not a one size fits all. We should have antler point restrictions everywhere. That that's not what the takeaway is. But down there, it did work. You uh you hit on one key thing right there, Tra tradition. Um, I live in live in Michigan. It's it's been a a growing topic, I guess you could say, of uh, point restrictions limiting from two bucks down to one buck, and and these are all things that you seem to get brought up more and more and more and more. And there's a driving force to to kind of do more here in Michigan. You, I mean, there's some good deer that come out of Southern Michigan, but not like Illinois and some of our surrounding States. And we have basically the, I'd like to think the same type of genetics here. So if you could, you could make a change. That's why when you brought up Arkansas and the, the antler point restrictions, I was intrigued by what Arkansas did and, and what the data showed at the end, because nobody thinks Arkansas has giant deer. Like you're, it's not Iowa. It's not one of those places that you're traveling to. Um, and kind of like Michigan, I mean, you don't travel to Michigan for giant deer, just how our structure is here, but that that's great that you guys have that. Like I, I never put two and two together that you guys have the data that you can help show what decisions have led to that. That's awesome. So if somebody has something they want to get entered at, at Boone and Crockett, what's the best way to go about it? So if you go on our website, there's a, there's a map on there that lists all the official measures you zoom in on your area and they'll give their your preferred contact and whatnot you can see who's closest to you um we don't have classifications and measures they're all they're all trained up the exact same it's it's a you know four-day course basically college level type uh, laboratory with hands-on scoring from everything from whitetails to walrus so they're they're certified to, to score anything and you get a hold of one of them it's got a dry 60 days um, at a habitable temperature. So, you know, get your bear skull cleaned or get your white tail, take it to the taxidermist and have them cut the skull plate off. You know, habitable 60 day drying period and get a hold of one of them and, and work out a time to uh, to get it scored. Some of them will, some of them will invite you to their house. They'll give you a beer while they're scoring. Other ones will want you to drop it off. It really depends on each individual major. They're all volunteers, but they will work with you to figure out a way to get, get that animal scored for you. That's great. So all your scores go through the four day, four-day course is it a, a one-time course to go through yeah it's a it's a one-time there there's you know there's quizzes and tests involved um it's it's a pretty intensive you know few days i mean it's you know eight nine hours a day minimum 
Um, but yeah, they all have to go through that. Every two years, we require them to update their contact information. And if there's any any policy changes or any new antler configurations that we've come across that hadn't been addressed previously, you know, we'll we'll reach out to them and say, hey, you know, before you can renew and continue on, you need to acknowledge this this wording clarification or this this slight policy change on how we deal with this particular antler configuration. But for the most part, yeah, once they're in, um, there's there's not an additional course they have to take at, at this point. Okay. And you said 1,400 scores across, is it across the U.S., across the U.S. and Canada? North America. North America. Right. We don't have a lot. We've, we've, we've got a, a two or three down in Mexico. We, we're trying to build that um, that quite a bit. That's one of the big things we're working on now is trying to find, you know, find some ways that we can expand Fair Chase down into Mexico and and see how we can, you know, get better data down there. I mean, that's a huge portion of North America that doesn't really, it, it's it's very different in how it's managed. And we talk about the North American model. Well, realistically, in many cases, it's U.S. and Canada. We'd like to get Mexico involved in that. No, that's a, that's a great point. I spent a lot of time down there, and it is a different management model down there. It'd be really interesting to to look at that long term how it's changed over the years for mule deer and, and desert sheep on the mainland and stuff like that mother's day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones blue nile has something she'll adore need a fast most items can ship overnight plus enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So what are um, some of the ways that the funds that come into Boone and Crockett are used? Well, like I said, I mean, we do we do run the records program, you know, um, that that is not a money maker for the club. We we maintain that that's part of our mission for, you know, the wildlife gauge of wildlife management. Um, but that is a piece of our conservation. We run a uh, both a centennial of the uh, the club founding. So in 1987, we purchased a ranch on the Boone and Crockett front that is a major wildlife migration corridor, um, and it. It actually has the Forest Service lease that runs up against um, Bob Marshall Wilderness. Well, when the club bought that, they wanted to use it for research, education, and demonstration. Basically, we wanted to show other landowners that you could run a wildlife-friendly ranch, you know, as a break-even operation. And in that case, we actually allowed it's completely open to public hunting. And so we have a lot of education programs. Boy Scouts come through there. There's pack rafting that they go into the Bob Marshall you know, we teach them about the North American model and, and just overall conservation. Um, that's that's a huge, huge outreach that we have that not a lot of people know about. Um, the club also has endowed professors, some of the top wildlife professors in the country. We work with universities to ensure they have a, a professor of wildlife management that um, is the top in their field. And they they're very active in you know, the cutting edge research, CWD, um, different things like that. And so, you know, we do fund those those professorships. And at the same time, you know, there's, um, oh, fellows, Boone and Crock has, you know, very high performing wildlife students that we we have working on on projects with BNC and, and funding them. Um, the Spen- uh, William I. Spencer grants and aid, a lot of the historic wildlife research that's been done um, actually program. You know, interestingly, the very first wildlife study basically done in the U.S., the Forest Service, Aldo Leopold, wrote a, a wildlife management um, booklet when he was in Arizona before going to Wisconsin and becoming the first wildlife professor. Well, the club actually was involved all the way from the beginning in, in helping fund that very first research. Um, Horniker was another uh, really 
influential um, biologist that did a bunch of work on mountain lions in Idaho and basically showed that like a tom mountain lion is self-regulating and that two mature toms won't um, occupy the same space. And so because of that research that we funded, that's when they started treating mountain lions more as a game animal instead of a predator. Hmm. And so, you know, we can go through a whole list of all these, these projects, but you know, the club is very involved in funding this research and making sure wildlife management is being, you know, successfully done through, through scientific, you know, analysis. We're not just, you know, just shooting from the hip and whoever may be the, the commissioner and, you know, in the seat at the time, isn't the one driving the state's management. So how many different, species does Boone and Crockett recognize? Uh, we have 38 categories and roughly you know, there's 29, excuse me, the North American 29. Yes, we still have a category for, for jaguar, don't see jaguars, but if, you know, one wandered into Arizona and got hit by a car or something, we would put that in our, in our data set. So yeah, we still do recognize jaguars, even though they're not hunted. Um, you know, two species of walrus, all, all those things are all still in there. Okay. Out of, I, I've kind of got a guess, but out of all these, which ones get the most love? Like, which ones get the most entries every year? Well, I mean, hands down, whitetail, because they're in, what, 49 states? Yep. 48 states. Yeah, white whitetail, far and away. Pronghorn are very widespread. Black bears are actually, they're expanding. We're seeing a lot of black bear entries and from places we didn't, especially in the southeastern United States. Um, you know, the the... the the alarming ones are the caribou, but it's been that way for, you know, a decade. And there is, there is little glimmers of hope here and there. Um, the woodland caribou, we're seeing a lot more very high-end trophies in, in the more recent times. And if you look historically, those populations will, will, will boom and then crash. And when they crash, basically all the forage comes in thicker. Mm -hmm. And so when the, the numbers are lower, pop in woodland caribou, um, get, extremely large and then numbers will you know grow and grow and grow until they over you know overtake the resource then there's another crash and so we're hoping that that's the case for the other species but woodland caribou are the only one where it's very scientifically documented that there's been three major crashes basically in historic recording times and is that just because it's a it's a smaller i mean it it's a smaller area that they're on you think there's better data just because the area is smaller yeah. compared to everything else? There's probably there's probably a lot of factors there. You know, they're not they're not near as some of these other species. Um, you know, it it it's the east east part of the continent which was inhabited earlier, so people stuff earlier. Um, I think there's there's probably numerous factors there, and I'm not positive why those are as, as heavily studied as they have been, but they definitely are. Do you know off the top of your head in the in the past crashes that they've had? Like, what's the what's the valley to the peak? So it hits all of a sudden. You can tell that they're this is the low. They're at the low here, and then how long does it take to build back up to the peak? You know what I've looked at, and I know in, in like the '90s we were getting you know two and three thousand caribou entries every three years from from all the different categories. Um, now we're down to the point where like five or six per species. And so for a lot of them, we're in the trough and, and our data, the, the further back you go, the less inclusive it was. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't say that our data is solid enough that I could definitely quantify a peak to a trough other than, you know, for a few of the species, we are definitely in a trough now. Yeah, no, I, it, caribou hunting definitely is, is a lot tougher. It's not what it, what it once was. Um, right. and, and you hit it on the nail on the head. It's, it's basically across all species of caribou too. There are, there are pockets that, that are doing better. Um, and I had always been told the same thing. It's when the population gets so big that they, they eat so much that it hurts them in the, in, in the future. And then it, it, the population shrinks back down and then all of a sudden they get small enough population that their habitat builds back up. And then they, they kind of go in those, those peaks and valleys, as you mentioned. You know, and that, again, that's on a very high, high level. I mean, if you look at a lot of the Alaska herds, they're being monitored really carefully now. And it's, it's not, it's not a resource depletion issue. There's other things going on that you'll see a three or four year increase and then it drops again. And that's, that's not being driven by that overall thing. I wouldn't guess. Mm -hmm. And so there, there's other factors that, that folks are looking at and it, it's, it's a frustrating species that, Honestly, we don't have a real great answer. We have some good hypotheses, but there's not a there's not a definitive. We have to fix this, or you know, we're we're going to be in trouble. Yeah. 
over the over the last couple, well, actually, no, over your time at Boone and Crockett, what would what are some of the most interesting or most memorable records that you've had come across your desk? Um, probably, probably the most memorable injury we had a, a, a walrus that was added to our scoring collection that was shipped in. That was a some you know fish and wildlife had they have a, a deposit or a repository basically of, of you know some of these heads that have been confiscated or picked up or whatever and it was i want to say number two or three in the world that was kind of crazy when that came in but i mean i got to be involved in the in the spider bowl and and you know doing a bunch of the research on that on you know a bunch of the accusations that came out mm-hmm. i mean i spent months calling every single person that said that they you know had seen something and uh, that was really interesting to kind of see how that all played out um obviously some of the uh you know, the Tucker buck out of you know Tennessee, that big non-typical whitetail. Um, most most recently, that buck that Huff took. I mean, those are pretty awesome to see the, the biggest of the biggest ever. But, you know, from a scientific standpoint, they're not quite as impressive as they are just as a hunter and a general outdoor enthusiast. Like, wow, this actually was in the wild. It's pretty amazing to see these things. I want to look like a cartoon. No, it's, that's pretty awesome. So when, and then one of the guys should ask this, a long time ago how and when did boone and crockett get started what was the reason behind when it when it was a when it was initially started up what was the reason behind so theodore roosevelt um had, had traveled out to the west and he had seen the decimation of wildlife and the western way of life going away um they'd seen already everything east of the mississippi had been pretty much destroyed and so there was a few influential folks that that he became friends with that decided to do something about this this horrible you know decline of wildlife and so in 1887 he had a dinner and then that next you know that was the basic founding of the club that february i believe they had a, a meeting and incorporated us um the very first time you know fair chase appears in, in north american uh literature was in the in the founding documents of the club at that point and so from there then they they just started taking on the, the issues at the time you know yellowstone was already a park but there was no enforcement. So we had some um, military uh, generals and whatnot that were involved early on. And so we were involved in sending out, um, you know, the protection, even though the park was already there, we kind of laid the groundwork for how future parks would be managed and how, you know, the illegal timber harvest and poaching that was taking place was, was curbed. And um, so that, I mean, that was the beginning within that the record side of things we can kind of trace our very first interest in big game records the 1895 and it was the uh first sportsman's exposition held in madison square gardens um three of the club members served as judges for a trophy competition there but it was really interesting reading their their criteria it's like oh i really like the links of the g3s on that one <laughs> plus five points plus oh five. the color on we'll give it plus two so it wasn't a real objective, you know, it was very subjective, not necessarily quantitative like our system is now. Oh, that's funny. That's, that's, that's funny. So what are some, some of, I, and you probably hear them all the time. What are some of the, the common misconceptions or myths about, about Boone and Crockett? Well, I mean, probably the, the biggest one that, that I guess kind of frustrates me is, is the idea of folks, um, you know, criticizing the system that, you know, the growth score is is what should be should be you know counted and give it credit for everything it grew well the system when it was designed basically identified three traits that were in the healthiest most mature male specimens and that was mass symmetry um you know and age basically is those those three combined is what what those older most mature males in the in that habitat were showing and so a lot of this deductions um, that people don't like, if you look at the base of those, you know, why are the bulls all broken up later in the season? Well, you know, drought conditions makes for lesser antler growth. And then you have an overpopulation of bulls with excessive fighting, you're going to see broken antlers. Mm-hmm. So that that particular deduction is due to a stressor on the wildlife population. You know, yeah, crazy non-typical flyer tying or something like that that comes off. Yeah, is it cool? Sure. I mean, it adds the trophy value to the hunter. But from a scientific standpoint, you know, look look how common um, bilateral symmetry is in throughout nature. You know, under the best conditions, that's what happens. And so, you know, this idea that like, well, it has this great flyer and it doesn't even get credit or it's got a missing time. 
I mean, generally speaking, those come from some type of stressor. And so that's that's the basis of our system and why, you know, the, the final or the net score is what Boone and Crockett always goes off of. Gotcha. That's good. I mean, I didn't I didn't know that one either. It all it all makes sense though with every everything that you that you said right there. Um well, that's great. So what are some other things you want everybody listening to know about Boone and Crockett? I mean, you know, we've got a great website, you know, join as a, as an associate member for 35 a year. Um, you know, our magazine, yeah, there's always, there's the grip and grins in the back and you can see the, the biggest animals being taken, you know, that's always fun, but you know, the scientific side of things, there's a lot going on right now um, in, in, you know, in the political arena and in the science arena. And we've got, you know, major diseases, you know, coming to the forefront through CWD and the research going on, you know, our magazine, we, we try to get as much of that in there. So you're the most educated you can be on these conservation topics. Um, you know, as a, as a hunter, I mean, yeah, you can go out and work hard, but at the, at the end of the day, you know, I guess to me, I feel like I'm a better hunter if I understand, you know, why I'm seeing these things and, 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 you know, our magazine and our website is a great place to go. And, of course, there's always the biggest and the best, which everybody loves to look at. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, look at the conservation pieces. See what else is going on so we can ensure that these these animals continue to, to appear and get bigger or better or healthier than they were previously. And you put is now you put that research in both the magazine that you guys send out and it goes to your website? Yep. Perfect. Oh, that's great. Um, anybody that's listening, I, again, I, I can tell you, I've spent a ton of time on their website just because of all the information that they have on there. Um, the way they break it down, I can honestly say I haven't seen when, when you start talking about the species that they do and the reasons why they do it. If you go to their website, I haven't seen it broken down anywhere near as easy to understand, which for me, that's a big part of it. Easy to understand. And just the detail that, that they do. I mean, you guys can tell you spend a, a, a ton of time on that. And it's like that, is that part of what falls underneath you to being in, being in records? I mean, again, we have a small staff, so we're, we're involved in a lot of it, but, but no, I mean, the, the research and a lot of that stuff is done by the top, top people in the academic field. That's not, you know, I, I might work with them with the data and say, Hey, you know, here's some bias that you'll see within our data. Here's when we, you know, when we, for example, 1976, we standardized the official training of majors. Prior to 1976, to become a major, like somebody sent in a letter and said, hey, I know, you know, Jim Smith, he's a great guy. He'd be a great major, and I taught him how to do it. And so some of the stuff in there, you know, my knowledge of the data set goes into it, but I'm not the one actually crunching the numbers. I mean, I collegiate why that's not. And it's funny, like, hearing the stories of how things were done, at the beginning or, or, or a long time ago of, Hey, that one has a really cool color. I'm going to add five points or this guy learned scoring from me. Like those are, those are all like, I, I always get a chuckle out of that stuff. Just the history of hunting and how, how it's developed to what it is today. And then if you even fast forward, okay, this is what it is today. Think about what it's going to be 20 years from now, 50 years from now. Like what is, what does hunting look like? How much different is it going to be? And in, in the research that you guys are doing there, I mean, you guys can kind of get a, a, a glimpse of what the future holds in different areas just from the research you guys have, are doing and what you've seen in the past. Yeah, you know, and, and that's, I mean, that's a very interesting thing on, on Fair Chase. You know, the club's always kind of tried to look into the future and see what are the challenges that animals are going to, you know, wildlife's going to face, forests are going to face. And, you know, our, our thing right now is, is it's public acceptance of hunting that we're very concerned with. And so that's why you see us kind of at the forefront of some of these conversations of, of, you know, just trying to get hunters to think about like, you know, what, what is what you're doing look like to a non-hunter? Yes, we Mm -hmm. understand, we know what's happening, but like, you know, minimize down this particular technology to somebody that's never set foot in the woods, has never glassed a herd of elk, who's never, you know, blast up a bunch of mule deer, you know, is that tactic you're doing, how's that going to sit with them? Because, you know, wildlife in North America is funded by hunters and Pittman Robertson. Mm-hmm. Um, hunting goes away, wildlife goes away. You know, that that's a simple fact. And so we need to ensure that, you know, as a community, the way we conduct ourselves and, and how we're in the field and, and doing what we do is acceptable to the majority of the country. 
you know, right now that's where the club puts a lot of our emphasis. And that's, that's why you see, you know, fair, excuse me, fair chase is as prominent as it is in, in most all of our materials. And, and with that, I mean, you guys, you guys do a great job of what you put in the magazine and, and so forth of showing the correct things. Um, and this is going to be a kind of a side subject here. I take your Boone and Crockett so you don't have to talk about them. But like, if you look at social media now, like what, what's your overall feel of what, what hunters are showing on social media? You know, I'm, I'm in a little bit of the minority on my personal feelings on social media. Um, I, I don't, I don't think that a, a quality, you know, grip and grin for lack of a better term is something that, shouldn't be put out there but at the same time it needs to be tasteful Mm -hmm. um you you look at historic problems with wildlife anytime you minimize the animal to a single factor you're 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 doing a disservice to the hunt now if you're only shooting it just for the antlers or you're only shooting it just for the meat at the end of the day, is that really different? No, you're, you're taking an animal that you're going to respect the antlers. You're going to utilize the meat. You're going to do everything you can with it. And so I think that, that a lot of folks, the tarts are in the right place and they're trying to change those social media looks by highlighting meat. Again, it's, it's a single, it's a very single aspect of the animal. Hunting is so much deeper than that. Like as long as you're very respectful to the place you are, you know, the people that you're with, a respect for the animal, you know, yeah, you can show the antlers and you can also show the pack out. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's what we need to be doing on social media. Not this in your face. I can do it. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. That's detrimental. Yeah. But you know, we don't have to just go hide in the corner and be ashamed of what we're doing. We just need to be very careful and tasteful and about what we're telling the public and be willing to explain to people. Here's why this picture of me with a white tail way back in means so much. This is, you know, 48 hours, staying in a tent, negative temperatures, staying, you know, huddled next to my wife and we spotted this buck and we got a great shot on it. And we had this great time together and we get to enjoy it and feed it to our friends. I mean, that's through social media, in my opinion, I really think we should be giving more of the picture instead of just running or being really confrontational to folks. Yep. The full, the full picture is what, and that's, I a hundred percent agree with you. I mean, you see these trends of where you go through like a couple of years ago, you're right. It was the meat. Like I got to, if I, if I, if I harvest something, I have to show a picture of the meat. Otherwise I'm going to get crucified. I have to show what I'm going to do with it. And and people started focusing so much on that. You, you would lose what it all was. Like, why did you leave your house to go into the wilderness to start with? Like show that show when you're out there, show the sites, like, how many how many mornings have have you woken up in the wilderness and just been in awe of watching everything wake up the sounds the sights like that's what that like I love that part of it and then the whole the whole thing but just like capture it all and then don't be afraid to show it all because you're there for every step of it yeah and that's you know I I, I think that we all could could excel at that I mean trying to explain to somebody why when I'm on a caribou hunt in Alaska and a muskox wanders by camp, that's one of the most amazing memories you can have. Yep. We have a muskox tag. We can't even get a muskox tag. It was nothing about shooting that muskox. It was being there and seeing a prehistoric animal come wandering past your camp while chasing caribou. That's, that's what just a lot of folks don't understand. And, and it's very hard to express that in social media, but that's what we need to try to do. No, I fully, I fully agree with that. Well, Justin, is there anything that that you want to leave as a as a last statement for Boone and Crockett Club or or yourself? You know, again, just you know, in order for us to succeed in what we're doing, I need those data points. Mm-hmm. And and you know, Pope and Young is the same. We work very closely with them. They're they're trending. They're they're monitoring archery trends um, for the future of hunting. Even if you don't care if your name's in the book. You know, do it for what we love and, and, and do it for the future and, and to show what was in the past. I mean, let us do our work to continue this by by helping us out where you can and, and submitting that entry. So we have those those data points that we can then use to do what we need to do. And and hopefully everybody that's listening realizes Boone and Crockett's one of those one of the organizations that is good for hunters and helping us not only today, but in the future with the scientific work that they're doing. Justin, thank you for your time today. It's been awesome. I can say I learned a lot of stuff about Boone and Crockett Club that that I didn't know, both with the history and, and the reasons why. 
Um, I feel like I'm better equipped now when somebody asks of, Hey, why, why would I put my enter this in with, with Boone and Crockett club? I, I don't care about seeing my name. I, I can better say, Hey, it's about the data point. It's about the data point, not just the data point, but this is what it's used for. This is what it's used for to help hunting and help, help everybody set the, the, the limits and the regulations of how things are managed. That's great. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, no problem. Appreciate it. Thank you everyone out there for all the support and downloads. Don't forget, go leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. That always helps. Also, if you're looking to book the hunt of a lifetime, go visit WTA at WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com or give the team a call in the office at 1-800-755-8247.